Happy hauntings, horror fans, and welcome to Megan's Murder Movies. I'm your host, Megan, and this week we are breaking out the popcorn to dissect one of my favorite New Age horror films, Get Out. I was so happy that this was my movie this week. I'm a huge Daniel Kaluuya fan, and even though this film is super freaking creepy, I love watching stuff with him in it. He's so talented, and Rel Howery as Rod can always lift my spirits, and I really needed that after this week. Did anyone else have a really intense work week, or was it just me? Alright, let's get into it. Remember, this podcast does contain spoilers, so listen at your own risk. Chris and his girlfriend Rose have reached the Meet the Parents milestone of their relationship. She invites him for a weekend getaway upstate with her parents, Missy and Dean. At first, Chris reads the family's overly accommodating behavior as nervous attempts to deal with their daughter's interracial relationship. However, as the weekend progresses, a series of increasingly disturbing discoveries leads him to a truth that he never could have imagined. All right, let's get into a cast breakdown. So Get Out was written and directed by Jordan Peele, and he actually had written over 200 drafts of the film before it was actually picked up. He started writing it during Obama's first term in office as kind of a writing exercise, Um, and he started writing this specifically because people were saying that racism was over now that Obama was president. It was like, ah, everything is perfect now. And he was kind of really writing this to identify the ways that it was not over and that racism is still very, very prevalent in today's society. All right. So Daniel Kaluuya plays Chris Washington, a young black photographer who's invited by Rose to her family's house. He's a British actor and writer. Kaluuya began his acting career as a teenager in improv theater, which is really interesting. He also portrayed Posh Kenneth in the first two seasons of the television series Skins, and he also co-wrote some of the episodes, which is really, really awesome. He is also in Welcome to the Punch, Kick-Ass, Get Out, obviously, Black Panther, Widows, Queen and Slim. He's been in so many great things. I would highly recommend to have just a Daniel Kaluuya weekend. Recently, he was in Judas and the Black Messiah, which is so interesting and fascinating. And the whole story of the COINTELPRO type stuff that was going on with the Black Power Movement is super fascinating. And I would definitely recommend that movie about Fred Hampton. Um, 10 out of 10. And Daniel Kaluuya is just absolutely stunning. Zyland Adams plays the younger version of Chris throughout the movie, and he was in the TV show Zoo, Get Out, and then also the TV show Seal Team. Allison William plays Rose Armitage, the daughter of the Armitage family, and Chris Washington's girlfriend. She played Kate Middleton in Will and Kate before Happily Ever After, which is really interesting. Um, I could definitely see that if you look at her. The parallels are there. She played in The League. She played in Girls and the Mindy Project, and then she also played Peter Pan and Peter Pan Live, which I think is really interesting, and I would love to find the time to try and find that online or whatever and watch it, because I bet that would be really interesting to see her as Peter Pan. Bradley Whitford plays Dean Armitage, a neurosurgeon and Rose's father. He's known for his portrayal of White House Deputy Chief of Staff Josh Lyman in the NBC television political drama series The West Wing, which was really popular. Whitford also played Danny Tripp in Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip, Dan Stark in the police buddy comedy The Good Guys, Timothy Carter, a character who was believed to be Red John in The Mentalist, which is also a super good show, antagonist Eric Gordon in the film Billy Madison, and Arthur Parsons in The Post. Then we move on to Caleb Landry-Jones, who plays Jeremy, Rose's brother. He's an American actor and musician known for his roles as Banshee in X-Men First Class. Of course, Jeremy in Get Out. Red Welby in Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. Also a really good movie. And Ty Carter in The Outpost. 
Stefan Root plays Jim Hudson, a blind art dealer who's a member of the wealthy Order of the Coagula organization. He started as Jimmy James on the television series News Radio as Milton Wadhams in the Office Space movie. And he's done quite a bit of voice acting in King of the Hill. He also was in Star Trek Next Generation, several roles in Coen Brothers films, including Brother Where Art Thou?, he played Hawthorne Absent in The Man in the High Castle. He also has a bunch of supporting roles in Boardwalk Empire, Barry, True Blood, Perry Mason, and Succession. If you watch HBO, I'm sure that you recognize him because he's been in pretty much every really popular show that HBO has had in the last, I don't know, 10 years. <laughs> now we will move on to Lakeith Stanfield, who is also super amazing. Even though he's not in the movie a whole lot, his role is super powerful and he plays Andre Hayworth slash Logan King, a member of the Order of the Coagula who is actually Andre, the person who's been missing for six months prior to the film's events. Uh, Lakeith made his first feature debut in the film Short Term 12, which such a good film. It's got Brie Larson, Rami Malek, definitely a good watch. Um, it's not super long. I think it's like 90 minutes. Definitely go watch it. Um, he was nominated for an Independent Spirit Award for Short Term 12. He received further recognition for his role in the film Selma, Straight Outta Compton, Crown Heights, Sorry to Bother You. He was also in Judas and the Black Messiah with Daniel Kaluuya in 2021. They both had amazing roles. Again, definitely go check that one out. Next, we'll move on to Katherine Keener, who plays Missy Armitage, a psychiatrist and Rose's mother. She was in Being John Milkovich, and she also portrayed Harper Lee in Capote. She appeared in the film's 40-Year-Old Virgin, Into the Wild, of course, Get Out, um, which were all really well-received by critics. Next, we'll move on to one of the best roles in any solid horror movie is the comedic role, and in Get Out, it goes to Rel Howry. He plays Rod Williams, a TSA airport officer and Chris's best friend. Howry's known for playing Robert Carmichael in The Carmichael Show, and more recently, he starred alongside Ryan Reynolds in the comedy film Free Guy, which I haven't seen yet, but it's on my list. Um, and yeah, super talented. He's absolutely amazing in this movie. Just uh, his role is so good. He's such a good actor. Um, I really hope to see him in more stuff soon because he's pretty, pretty good. Erica Alexander, who plays Detective LaToya. She's an actress, writer, producer, and entrepreneur, and also an activist best known for her role as Pam Tucker on the ABC sitcom The Cosby Show and Maxine Shaw on the Fox sitcom Living Single. Um, she's won numerous awards for her work on Living Single, including two NAACP Image Awards and Outstanding Actress in a Comedy Series. Her film credits include The Long Walk Home, 30 Years to Life, Deja Vu, and of course, Get Out. Mark Henderson is Walter, the groundskeeper, who's actually Roman Armitage, founder of the Order of the Coagula, and the patriarch of the Armitage family, also Rose's grandfather. And he's been in the film Honey Dripper, Django Unchained, Whiplash, also really good, Woodlawn, Halfway, and Pete's Dragon before he was in Get Out. Next, we have the super talented Betty Gabriel, who plays Georgina, a housekeeper who's actually Marion Armitage, the Armitage family matriarch and Rose's grandmother in Georgina's body. She began her career in musical theater and made her scream debut in the short film In Memoriam. 
She also played Lanny Rucker in the action film The Purge Election Year and Denise in the period drama series Good Girls Revolt. Um, she's been in a ton of Bloomhouse films, which include Unfriended Dark Web, Upgrade, and Adopt a Highway. She's super talented. Um, she also portrayed Pam Duffy in the miniseries Defending Jacob, which I've heard really, really good things about. She was also so, and she was also Sophie Brewer in the Netflix drama series Clickbait which is also super good. I've actually seen that one, but I haven't seen Defending Jacob, but I hear it's pretty, pretty interesting. She received rave reviews as her role as Georgina. She plays it so well. Just her expressions are top tier in Hollywood right now. Just Betty is amazing. Can't wait to see her in more stuff, hopefully. And I would love to see her in a musical. Like 10 out of 10, let's hear that voice, ma'am. Lastly, we have Richard Hurd as Roman Armitage, the founder of the Coagula and patriarch of the Armitage family, which we talked about earlier. He's well known for, he's really well known in the science fiction community for his roles in V and V the Final Battle, Star Trek, Seinfeld. He made guest appearances in Quantum Leap. He played the children's show host Captain Galaxy. He's also done some voice acting in the game Fallout New Vegas, and Hart appeared at a number of fan conventions for his science fiction roles. Very, very big in the science fiction community. Now that we've chatted about the cast a little bit and who they play, we can get into some fun facts about the film. So first fun fact is that there is an alternate ending to the film, but we're going to chat about that more at the end um, because, yeah, that just makes the most sense, and I'm excited to get into that conversation because it's really interesting. Uh, next fun fact is that Chance the Rapper gave away free tickets to Get Out's Chicago opening. Um, so basically at the Chatham Theater on 87th Street in Chicago, Chance went and bought every single ticket to every single seat for opening night of Get Out and went to Twitter to urge his followers to go to the box office and claim a ticket because um, really just wanted to make sure that, you know, a movie by a black writer, black director mostly black cast, um, was going to get the recognition that it deserved. And I'm really happy that this movie did because now Jordan Peele's making more movies. Us is great. We're going to talk about that soon. And I can't wait to see his next one. I can't remember what it's called, but I've seen the cast and the cast looks great. Just, I just want him to keep making horror movies because it just feeds my soul. So next we'll talk about the sunken place, um, which is used as a metaphor and it's really multi-layered, but the main theme of the film's horror is the real world concept of kind of the system of racism silencing you no matter how loudly you shout. So all of the systemic racism that is, you know, embedded into society is, you know, going to prevent change from happening and prevent certain voices from being heard. And so I guess on the Blu-ray, Peel also explicitly stated that it's a metaphor for the marginalization of black horror movie audiences um, that, you know, he says we're very loyal horror movie fan base and we're regulated to theater, not on the screen. Again, like I said, uh, super happy that this movie did so well. So Hollywood's like, oh yeah, we should keep funding these things and giving these voices the opportunity. Um, I think it's amazing because we need more of that in just the world in general, not just Hollywood, but um, it's good to see that slow change is happening, I guess. I wish there was more. Um, but yeah, what we can do is give our money to things like this. Um, put your money where your mouth is if you want to see representation. You need to spend your money on things that show representation so that you can show Hollywood that 
so that we can show Hollywood that, yes, this is what we want to see. This is what's important. Um, and this is real life. So then another fun fact about Jordan is that I guess he gave comments while he was directing in the form of impressions. Um, I guess when you're known for impersonating people, um, you kind of bring that when you're giving your actors specific notes. So some of his um, onset impressions included Obama, which is, you know, one of the impressions that he's famous for, and then also Tracy Morgan. In the fall of 2017, author Tananarive Du, who we chatted about in Candyman, taught a class called Sunken Place, Racism, Survival, and Black Horror Aesthetic at UCLA, which would have been so interesting to sit in on. Um, but I guess Peel even dropped by the class to expand on, among other things, the film's metaphorical connection to the modern prison industrial complex, which is super fascinating. And um, we've got a resource for that um, at the end, which I will also have in the comments and on our socials. Uh, another fun fact is that when Rose stops the cop from checking Chris's license um, when they're driving up to her parents, it's not to stand up for him against a racist act. It's to ensure that there's no paper trail connecting Chris with her family. Because um, if the guy would have, if the policeman would have looked at the license, he could have had to take note or went to run it to make sure that there was no warrants or whatever police officers do when they, you know, take your license away for the few minutes that they're gone. Um, but yeah, it was to basically cover her and her family's tracks. And so this is only one of the many um, suspicious acts that Rose pulls during the story. And I guess Jordan Peele encourages fans to watch the movie again to see specifically how Rose plays things and acts in certain scenes. Um, Frickin' Allison does an amazing job. Some of the the most chilling scenes, I think, have to do with interactions with her and someone else, specifically her and Chris, because it's just some of her like smirks and smiles, they're just, mm, they're bone chilling. And Allison does an amazing job playing Rose. So then a super fun, important fact is that Get Out was the first February release since The Silence of the Lambs to score a Best Picture Oscar nomination. Um, Silence of the Lambs actually went on to win. Sadly, Get Out didn't. Um, but Jordan notes that Jonathan Demme's classic as a part of inspiration for the film, citing the scene where Hannibal Lecter is calmly waiting at the end of the prison hospital hallway as a model for how he introduced Georgina. Um, and Silence of the Lambs and Get Out are also two of the very, very, very small number of horror films to ever be nominated for the Best Picture Award or is really overlooked in the film award categories. And yeah, just the fact that they both got nominations um so late in the year because i think the cutoff is like february nine times out of ten if your film releases in february it's not really going to be considered by the academy and so the fact that it was really considered and was nominated is super exciting going off of that though jordan did go on to win the oscar for the best original screenplay during the 2018 oscars and so he was the first black filmmaker to earn that honor which is Sad that it took us so long to get to have a black filmmaker uh, win for best original screenplay, but also super exciting that it went to a horror film and that it went to Get Out because it's just, it's so good. Oh, I love this movie so much. And it's not Megan's murder movies if we do not talk about the score. So Michael Abels composed the film score, which Jordan Peele said that he wanted to have distinctly black voices and black musical references, which proved to be kind of a challenge as Peele found that a lot of African music typically has what is termed, at the very least, a glimmer of hope to it. 
which Peel did not want in the movie at all. At the same time, Peel also wanted to avoid having a voodoo motif, and so the final score features Swahili voices as well as a blues influence. Um, I'm not going to try to pronounce these. I looked up the pronunciations. I don't want to say it wrong. I apologize. Um, But what we hear during kind of that first opening song and then at the end when Chris and Rod are driving away is a Swahili phrase that translates to listen to your ancestors, which indicates to the listener something bad is coming. Run or get out as the film is so spectacularly called. Peel says that the words are issued as a warning to Chris throughout the whole movie and says that the whole idea of the movie is get out, which is what we're screaming at the character on screen. Um, the song Redbone by Childish Gambino is also featured in the film and appears at the movie's beginning. Other songs of the film include Run, Rabbit, Run, which we'll chat about by Flanagan and Allen, and I've Had the Time of My Life by Bill Medley and Jennifer Warrens. Next fun fact is that Daniel Kaluuya actually landed the lead role of Chris Washington on the spot following his first audition. Jordan asked him to perform one pivotal scene that required him to cry. I'm guessing it was either a scene that was cut or possibly the scene where he's in the chair either talking with Missy for the first time or after he learns about the coagula. But he did it five times and a single tear rolled down his cheek at the same point in every take. He's so talented. Like, I want to know how many actors can do that. He's just, ugh, he's so talented. And so Peel at that moment realized that Kaluuya was perfect for the role and was like, you know what? You win. You got it. Welcome. Congratulations. Because, yeah, he really at that moment couldn't see anybody else in the role aside from Kaluuya. All right, now that we've met the cast and talked about some fun facts about the movie, let's get into our scene-by-scene breakdown. The opening scene of the movie is nighttime and we see a black man talking on the phone walking through the suburbs. He's lost and notices that a car starts following him. Um, It's a white car. I do not ask me what kind of car it is because I do not know. Um, But you can hear the song Run Rabbit Run, which is playing in the background, like presumably coming from the car, which is a a pretty solid warning and kind of spooky. When you think about, like, the the song kind of seems a little bit upbeat, but it's just very, um, very kind of chanty, so it's it's very much a warning. Um, it makes the song seem super creepy. But, so our character, Andre, is trying to walk away from the car, um, but he's abducted by a guy in the mask. We see him get dragged and put in the trunk of the white car, and Run, Rabbit, Run plays until the trunk is shut, and then it's silent for a good few seconds before we get this really intense string moment going on. And then that Swahili song starts playing as our names start rolling on the screen, um, which is just kind of meant as a warning to the audience and a warning to our main character, Chris, that something bad is coming. This is not, whatever's happening is not going to be good. Once we get through the opening credits, we start seeing black and white photographs and then the inside of our main character, Chris's apartment. He's a photographer and he's looking through images on his camera and then we also see this white woman for the first time and that's Rose and she's picking out pastries and coffee for the two of them. She gets to Chris's apartment, knocks on the door, then we see Chris packing um, and we kind of learn through their conversations that Chris is packing to go meet Rose's family for the first time over the weekend. Um, He seems kind of anxious and he kind of nervously asks her if her family knows that he's black. She says no and she acts like she doesn't really see why that's important or why she would need to tell them. Uh, He seems, you know, kind of um, 
trying to imply that maybe she should bring it up, maybe she should let him know, and she's just trying to reassure him and tell him that it'll be fine, but he has some reservations um, because she says that he's the first black man that she's dated, and so he's just like, I don't want it to be a surprise, I don't want to get chased away with a gun, and Rose basically says that, you know, the worst thing that's going to happen is that her dad will tell Chris that he would have voted for Obama for a third time if he could, um, which he does end up telling Chris when they meet, and she insists that they're not racist, that they're just going to be lame parents, and that's kind of the worst of it, which is not the worst of it, clearly. All right, so Chris is packed. They've had their little breakfast of pastries. I think donuts is what it looked like it was going to be, and coffee, and they are getting on the road. So they're in the car, and Chris is going to smoke, and so he takes out a cigarette, and Rose grabs it from him and throws it out the window. They kind of argue for a second, and he's like, you just threw a dollar out the window, and she's like, well, that's a dollar that you chose to spend on nicotine, so that's your own fault. Um, they kind of, you know, and end that conversation, and Chris takes out his phone to call his friend Rod, who works for TSA. And Rod's also going to be taking care of Chris's dog while they're gone for the weekend, and so Chris is making sure that Rod knows, you know, all of the things to take care of the dog, and he's like, it's fine. I know what I'm doing. I can handle it. It's all good. Um... Rod is really the classic comedic character, and he has Chris's back throughout the movie. He's so good. Like, he's such a solid comedic character in a horror film, and I just, oh, he's so great. Um, and then Rod and Rose kind of chat over the speakerphone, and they make jokes about how they're actually in love, and that, you know, Rose is just using Chris to get to Rod, and it's just a big joke, and Chris is, like, clearly uncomfortable, and he's like, okay, bye, and kind of, like, hangs up on Rod, um, but before when Rod and Chris were on the phone, he jokingly warns Chris that going to meet the white parents is a bad idea. Um, but they get off the phone and they're kind of, you know, talking and laughing and just chatting while Rose is driving and a deer jumps in front of their car and Rose hits it. N not on purpose, it just, that was, the deer kind of jumped into the car. Um, the deer's still alive but can't move. They presumably had to just either let it die or put it out of their misery they don't really talk about what happens with the deer, but it appears that Rose calls the police and the cop's kind of a jerk. He's like, you know, next time this happens, you want to call animal control, like kind of acting like he has better things to do than to come check them and make sure that they're okay and that the deer's fine or that the deer gets taken care of. Um, and then the cop also asks to see Chris's license, even though he wasn't driving. And so Rose starts to question the the police officer and is like, I don't really know why you need to see that. He wasn't driving. There's really no reason why. The cop's kind of insistent and sh she calls him out basically saying that he's, you know, implying that he's being racist and wanting to look at Chris's ID. Chris tries to give him the ID because he just wants to move on with the day and kind of not cause a scene. Um, but Rose is very much acting like she has his back and she's, you know, supportive and making sure that he's not going to be messed with or um, taken advantage of by, you know, a system that is known for taking advantage of specifically black men. But we'll find out later that she just didn't want a paper trail because she's sneaky and we don't like that. Um, so she starts questioning the cop and he eventually drops the subject and leaves. He tells her that she needs to get her headlight fixed and her mirror fixed, that the deer messed up when it hit her car. Um, but they get back in the car and they head on and they soon arrive at Rose's parents' house. Um, and the first person that they see when they pull up is a groundskeeper, the black man, Walter, that we will meet like officially a little bit later. And this next part's really interesting because they pull up to the house and it's a shot from outside of the house while everyone meets each other. It's probably a good 20 seconds, 15 to 20 seconds of just this house. 
of like the car pulling up, them getting out, and you can see like Dean and Missy, but it's not what you would think of as a close-up when you're having new two new characters get introduced into a scene to see them from so far away. We don't really get to see their faces until after this, you know, 15 to 20 second ends. I think it's because Jordan wants you to know what the house looks like um, for what's going to happen toward the end. Um, and so as the camera kind of zooms out, you see Walter the groundskeeper just standing in the lawn looking toward everybody meeting each other and chatting with each other for the first time, which is a little, a little foreboding, I guess would be the best word. So then we are finally taken into the house and everyone's chatting about the drive. They talk about the deer and Rose dad gets on this really weird soapbox thing being real kind of aggressive about how he hates deer and the deer are destroying the ecosystem and he can't stand them. And, you know, one more one more dead deer is a good start or some weird thing. And it's just Chris is everyone's clearly uncomfortable, but Chris is really uncomfortable it just kind of further fuels that racist rhetoric that we've heard throughout history and that's kind of been around and, you know, seemed to slowly build up again during the Trump administration. Um, and yeah, the, the whole deer conversation is really interesting. So they finally get Dean off of the subject of deer and he is being just that real awkward dad and he asks how long Chris and Rose have been seeing each other. Then he wants to give Chris the tour of the house and Missy the mom is kind of like, can't you just let them settle in? And he's like, no, but like I want, I want to give them the tour like this, you know, he clearly had a whole plan in his head of how he wanted things to go um, and everyone just kind of let Dean run the show. And so during the tour, you learn that Rose's mom, Missy, is a psychiatrist and that Rose's dad, Dean, is a neurosurgeon and they clearly have money. He starts casually talking about how these like random candle holders um, that they have, they got in Bali and he starts talking about how great it is to experience another person's culture. Um, then he takes Chris over to a wall of what looked like a bunch of family photos and Dean starts talking about how his dad almost went to the Olympics but was beat out by Jesse Owens. And so Jesse Owens went on to win gold in the 1936 Berlin Olympics in front of Hitler, which was super groundbreaking and just kind of really, really just kind of egg on Hitler's face for, you know, his him preaching that perfect white Aryan race thing to then have this black man come in and be like, yep, I win gold. So during this moment, Dean is really trying to show, you know, that he's with it. He's woke, as we would, you know, as people would say nowadays, you know, very much that, white liberal trying to be understanding and you know with it with you know race and all of those talks and conversations um but chris is actually trying to be sympathetic and he's like oh you know that's that's kind of a bummer for your dad i'm you know i'm sure he worked hard to you know potentially go to the olympics and dean makes a comment and he's like yeah well he almost got over it which is a very good foreshadow next dean takes chris into the kitchen and we meet georgina um, Dean says that his mom loved the kitchen, so they keep a little piece of her in it. Also another good vague foreshadowing. Uh, Dean then takes Chris out back to kind of see the house and the grounds. Dean says that he understands how everything looks, you know, a white family with black servants because of their housekeeper and their groundskeeper. Um, and Chris said that he wasn't going to take it there. And Dean explains that Walter, the groundskeeper, and Georgina, the maid, were hired to take care of Dean's parents when they got sick. And when his parents passed, they just didn't want to lose them either because they had come part of the family, trying to really 
you know, I guess that would make sense of like, ah, they were with us for so long and we really like them. So we'll just, you know, keep them on. Why not? But Chris is kind of just like agreeing with a lot of what Dean's saying, I think, just to kind of get the conversation over with and just really be polite. Chris throughout the whole movie really doesn't want to cause a scene with anything. He doesn't want to be seen as, you know, someone other. He's just trying to fit in as best he can. Not in a way where he's not, um, you know, embracing who he is. Like, he definitely, I feel like, has a pretty good sense of identity. Um, But, you know, he's just not wanting to cause waves. He's, you know, this is the first time in any situation where you're meeting your partner's parents for the first time. You want to make a good first impression. And Chris clearly cares a lot about Rose. Um, And so he's just kind of agreeing with what Dean says, just to be polite and I think just kind of get the conversation over with. Um, And then while they're kind of out back by the gazebo after this conversation, Dean says the Obama line of he goes, well, you know, I think that he was the best damn president I've ever seen and I would have voted for him a third time if I could have. And it's just kind of like, ah, you you, you said it. She knew it. And yeah, just kind of further trying to push that he's woke and with it and not racist. It's one of those, like, the more you try to push that you're not nowadays, especially after seeing this movie, it's like, the more you try to push that you're not, the more skeptical I feel about it. So then later that afternoon, they're all relaxing outside and Missy and Dean start asking about Chris's family. And Chris explains that his dad really wasn't around and that his mom passed away when he was 11 um, during a hit and run. Chris says that he doesn't really remember much about that and Dean clocks his nicotine withdrawals because Chris is like shaking his hand a lot and they try to get him to agree to let Missy hypnotize him so that he can quit cigarettes. Um, Chris is like, no thanks, I think I'm okay, like I know that they're bad but I'm gonna, you know, I'm trying to quit. They just start grilling him about how it's really unhealthy and it's not safe and that he shouldn't be doing that and he's like, I know, like it's fine and so while they're kind of talking, They move on from the cigarette conversation and they start talking about the big party. And Rose forgets that the so-called quote-unquote party is this weekend. And so apparently Dean and Missy talk about how his dad, Dean's dad, um, used to throw this big party in the summer once a year. And that after they passed away, they just kept it up, you know, to kind of stay in touch with everyone in the community and Rose is like, I, you know, that's not this weekend. And they're like, yeah, it's the same weekend every year, which is weird because you'd think that at 20-something years old, you would, like, remember family traditions like that. But supposedly she forgot that the party was that weekend. And so while they're talking about this, Georgina is refilling everybody's tea glasses. It looks like they're having, like, iced tea. And she has this weird moment where she looks like she's just very intently spacing out and she spills tea on the table, which, I mean, who hasn't? You're pouring a pitcher. Pitchers are kind of the most awkward of vessels to pour things out of, even though they're like meant to be poured. They're just not great. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know how many Kool-Aids I've spilt, lemonades I've spilt over the years out of a freaking pitcher. Anyway, uh, Missy suggests that she should go lay down and, you know, she says, yeah, I think I'll do that. That's probably a good idea. It's kind of an awkward situation. Missy seems a little bit short with Georgina. It's like, she just spilled a little bit of tea. Like, it didn't hurt anybody. It's it's okay. Um, but just gets a little bit short. And so that's a little uncomfortable, I think, for everyone at the table, it looks like. And then right after Georgina heads to go inside, Jeremy, Rose's younger brother, shows up. 
So during dinner that night, everyone is talking and laughing. It seems to be kind of a normal family dinner, especially for, you know, meeting your partner's parents for the first time. It's a lot of embarrassing conversations. Jeremy's really trying to embarrass Rose, um, you know, with stories from their past and stuff like that. And so, you know, things seem to be going fairly well. And then as soon as Missy goes into the kitchen to get dessert, everything kind of changes. And Jeremy gets really intense and starts asking Chris if he likes MMA. And Chris is like, no, I did like jujitsu when I was a little kid, you know, just like once a week, no big deal. And he tells Chris that with your frame and genetic makeup, you could really push your body and totally become this like beast. And Chris gets really uncomfortable. He's like, yeah, like, I don't know, Uh, I I guess, like, you know, not really agreeing or disagreeing, just hoping that someone will change the subject. Um, Rose seems really annoyed at her brother by him you know, asking these questions and saying these things, but doesn't outwardly, like, so saved by the cake, Missy brings in the carrot cake, and the room kind of gets quiet because of Jeremy's weird MMA genetic makeup conversation, um, and then at that moment, Jeremy then tries to put Chris in a headlock. He's like, no, like, just come, let me, let me show you stuff, and, like, wants to wrestle with him, which is just really weird, and They, like, tell Jeremy to knock it off. He says that he wasn't going to hurt him, and he just kind of stomps away. Like, you know, he's probably early 20s, I would say. Maybe he's, like, 19. Um, You know, maybe he's, like, freshman in college type thing. But I really think he's probably early 20s, and he acts in this moment like he's about 7. Maybe even 4 of just, like, it's I wasn't going to do anything. And he just kind of, like, stomps out of the room. So dinner ends on a really weird note when just... Three minutes ago, everything seemed to be going really smooth. So after dinner, they go upstairs and Rose is just ranting while she's brushing her teeth because she doesn't understand why her family's acting so weird. Um, She says that they're acting really different and she's just really annoyed because how are they different than that cop that was trying to kind of target Chris and single him out when he wasn't driving and there was really no need for the policeman to look at Chris's license or anything or his ID Um, because Chris doesn't have a license, and so he wouldn't have been driving in the first place. But anyway, so Rose is ranting, and she's like, I don't understand why they're acting different, or it's it's weird. Like, why is it weird? And it just sucks. Like, I'm sorry that I brought you here. And Chris jokingly says, I told you so, and then Rose starts apologizing, and Chris is like, it's fine. He reassures her that they really aren't that bad, and that he likes her for her. Her families, yes, their opinions are important, but at the end of the day, their relationship is their relationship is kind of what he's, I think, getting at. So things seem to settle a little bit and they go to bed. So that night, Chris is unable to sleep and he's just kind of replaying what happened with the deer. Um, And so he decides to go for a walk outside. And while he's out there, he's like kind of hearing rustling behind him. And so he starts looking around, but of course it's dark outside. And he sees Walter just full sprint toward him, cuts right in front of him and then just keeps running. And Chris is, like, clearly a little confused. <laughs> um, and then he also sees Georgina looking at her reflection in the window. And so she, like, can't see out the window that he's outside. But she can see her, like, messing with her hair and, like, touching her face and just being very, like, into how she looks, which is not a bad thing. Um, but, you know, it's always a weird thing when you catch people kind of being vain, I guess you could say. Um, and you know, they're, they're really just kind of looking at their self, 
they're really just kind of looking at themselves and you can tell that they like how they look, which isn't a bad thing again. Um, but, you know, it, it kind of felt like he was intruding in this very personal moment that he was having, um, which is just a little bit uncomfortable. Um, and so then he decides to come back inside and Missy's up, which I don't think he expected anyone else in the family to be awake. And she kind of startles him and asks him to sit down in her office and they kind of start chatting and she ends up hypnotizing him. She asks if he wants to know how it works and she uses a teacup rather than a pocket watch. She kind of makes this joke of like, are you going to dangle a pocket watch in front of my face? And she goes, oh, you, you really do watch a lot of TV. Um... And so Missy starts asking really personal questions about how his mother died and where he was and what was going on that night. And she's having him revisit that night and, you know, kind of go back into that memory that he's been kind of avoiding. Um, And we see bits of the memory of Chris watching TV, wondering where his mom is, but he never went to look for her or anything, never told anyone that she wasn't home yet. He just kind of sat there frozen watching TV. Um... Chris is thinking back on this and crying. He's frozen in the chair that he's in now, much like that night. And Missy has him sink for the first time into the sunken place. And so the sunken place is just this black void that Chris floats in. Like, there's no floor. There's no ceiling. It's just this black void, basically, an abyss. Um, And he's just kind of floating in. He can't talk. um, He can't move his body. But he can see Missy. And so it's almost like he's looking at the world through a screen kind of but again he can't move or talk he has no um, no function over his body Uh, and so missy closes his eyes and then chris wakes up in bed is the next thing that we see Uh, rose is in the shower and rod sends chris a picture of sid chris's dog that he's watching and so later that morning chris goes out to take some pictures in the woods just kind of i think get some more fresh air there are a bunch of chairs laid out by the gazebo in the backyard assumably for the party Chris then sees Walter chopping wood and decides to go kind of have a chat with him, just get to know him a little bit. But it's a really odd interaction. Um, Walter's very smiley, um, almost like forced smiling. Um, And it's just kind of talking really oddly about Rose, about how lovely she is and she's a keeper. And he's also just using older expressions and it's making Chris super uncomfortable because you would imagine that Walter probably isn't the same age as Chris, maybe maybe five to probably not even 10 years older. Um, you know, so around the same age, he shouldn't be talking like he's in his 60s or 70s or older. And so it's just a really awkward conversation. And Chris kind of is thinking that Walter may have a crush on Rose just because of the way that he's talking about her. And so Chris ends up going upstairs and starts talking to Rose and he tells Rose about being hypnotized by her mom. Um, And she apologizes, but it doesn't really seem genuine. She's like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. That's wild. I can't believe she did that. Like, it's very just kind of one tone. Um, And then Chris also decides to bring up the fact that he talked to Walter and he thinks that Walter might like her. And Rose just kind of treats this as a joke and she goes, oh my gosh, so like, do you think I have a chance with Walter? Like, like, should I go talk to him? You know, like a, like a teenage schoolgirl type, type thing. Um, and he's, you know, kind of laughs it off. And even though he's clearly uncomfortable and having a hard time, he's like, ah, ha, ha, okay, whatever, fine. 
Rose is basically just trying to make light of the situation or acting like she's trying to make light of the situation. So they both laugh it off and then they hear cars start pulling up to the house. And it almost seems like a funeral procession to me because all of the cars are black and they're pulling in in a line and it just very much feels kind of funerally to me. So next Rose and Chris are at the party and she's kind of bringing him around, introducing him to everyone. Everyone's really into Chris, like really into Chris and it's making him very uncomfortable. He's the center of every conversation and most conversations end up turning back to the idea of race or black people in general. Like, um, you know, one of the guys is talking about, you know, he used to be a professional golfer and, you know, he's very adamant about the fact that he knows Tiger Woods and he loves Tiger Woods. And so that's kind of the first interaction we see and you're like, okay, I guess that's not terrible but also like definitely seems like a microaggression this really just kind of drives the fact or tries to drive the fact that um all of these people are liberal white people who are very you know for equality and trying to be comfortable around this black person who they clearly have never been around anyone of color before who hasn't like worked for them like one of these guys even says to chris that black is quote unquote in fashion Um, And if you look at Rose during these scenes, she definitely looks uncomfortable, but I think it's for the wrong reasons. She's really, you know, instead of like telling the people, hey, you're kind of being out of line or she almost seems like embarrassed for Chris, um, but she's actually just upset with the guests for being so obvious um, and not like acting nonchalant because she's worried that Chris is going to catch on because he's already a little bit on edge and feeling like things are a little bit off. Um, And so I think that Rose is worried that everyone's going to blow kind of their whole operation if they don't stop being uncomfortable and just creepy. Chris starts taking pictures at the party just, I think, to kind of take some space to himself and he sees another black guest. And this is Andre from the opening sequence. And so Chris goes up and talks with him but he's definitely different from when we saw him at the opening of the film. Um, He's wearing different, much different clothes. He's talking different. Again, kind of like Walter about he's, you know, talking, um, you know, kind of in older expressions and very much laid back and not kind of, you know, not in on the lingo that most younger people of kind of Chris and Rose's age, um, not how they talk. So he's talking different and he also says that his name is Logan acting very pretentious and so chris goes to like bump fist with him when they go to leave and the logan slash andre character tries to shake his hand which is um definitely a red flag you know um that's a it's a common greeting among people and it just yeah definitely sets off a red flag so chris decides to um you know take some more space he kind of walks over toward the gazebo everyone was kind of like congregating on the back porch area and so he decides i'm gonna go over and just kind of spend some time closer to the water i think just to take a break he didn't realize anyone was over there but this is when he meets jim hudson uh, who is a art dealer and he seems to relate to chris on more of a personal level in terms of being an outsider because jim is blind And so Chris and Jim have a really nice chat. Um, Jim's actually a fan of Chris's work. And so they talk about that a little bit and photography. And so this is the first like real um, genuine conversation that Chris has had throughout the entire party of just like what interests Chris have and, you know, just kind of getting to know him more as a person instead of just, oh, yeah, you're Rose's black boyfriend. And it's like, yeah, but he's also a 
successful photographer and he has a dog and he's a really genuinely nice guy and he's got a really great best friend and you know there's you know he's he's a whole full rounded person not just um not just the color of his skin and so it's really nice um presumably that him and Jim have this conversation and I think it kind of relaxes I think it kind of relaxes Chris a little bit in this moment but after this talk with Jim we see Chris go inside I think to take another little break from the party and also check on his phone um once he goes upstairs everyone who's in the house stops talking and immediately just starts kind of looking up toward the stairs and it's super awkward it's a couple seconds of just total silence as everyone's just kind of looking at each other and looking up the stairs like you can tell something's going on but at this point we're still not exactly sure what is going on um so runs upstairs chris sees that his phone is off the charger and completely dead and he had put it on the charger that morning when rose was in the shower that was something that the audience saw him do like pick up the cord plug his phone in so that it would charge rose goes up to find him and kind of tells um chris off because she's like i can't believe you just left me down there like i've been looking for you and Chris tells her about the phone. Chris is worried that that now Georgina is not happy that they're together. And Rose just kind of gaslights him um, to try and get him to stop. She's like, oh, you know, so you're just so gorgeous that people are just unplugging your phone now. And so she really, that's kind of a trend that she has of just gaslighting him and making him feel crazy so that he's just like, nah, you're right, my bad. Like, I don't know. Okay, never mind. Um, or saying that she'll tell her parents, which also makes Chris uncomfortable because he doesn't want to cause a scene. Um, You know, he doesn't want to be seen as a troublemaker or, you know, someone who's going to cause a ruckus. And so he doesn't, you know, doesn't want her to run off and tell her parents so that, you know, Georgina or Walter or whomever get in trouble because he just wants to be seen as the nice boyfriend, um, you know, who's hopefully going to be around for a while in Chris's head. I think he wants to, you know, he sees a future with Rose, I think, um, you know, until the end. And so Chris calls Rod once his phone has a little bit of juice and kind of tells him about what's going on. And Rod tries to understand, but he does not like anything that Chris is telling him. He freaks out when Chris says he was hypnotized. Um, He worries that Chris will be turned into a sex slave. He's like, this is what these people do. They turn people into sex slaves. I bet that's what the mom's doing. I've seen stuff about this. It was on A&E. Just like totally going off about this whole sex sex slave theory that he has. Um, but once, once Chris and Rod get off the phone, Georgina comes in to apologize about messing with his phone. And so she looks like she's again, maybe late twenties, early thirties, and she's talking like she's about 70 or 80. Um, Chris said that he didn't mean to snitch on her and she doesn't know what that means. And so he's like, I, you know, trying to find other synonyms and she uses the word tattletale, which I feel like is a very old white word um I don't think that tattletale is really used that often um you know I remember my grandma my white grandma using it um when I was little but I don't think it's a it's a common word anymore um especially for you know a late 20s early 30s um black woman and so Chris tells her that when too many white people are around, he gets nervous. And then Georgina's face just kind of freezes and her breath becomes really shaky. And she's kind of laughing, but also crying. And she just keeps saying the word no. And so Chris is obviously freaked out because it's like, what, what is happening? And um, Betty does so good. The actress who plays Georgina does so amazing in this scene. Just 
like the internal battle that you realize later is what's happening in this scene is so good. Like I think it's actually Georgina telling her no that like the woman inside her is not going to get out even though she's trying her hardest to get out. It's it's so good. So once Georgina finally gets whatever's going on kind of under control, she says that she's never had that experience. She's never had that experience because the Armitages treat them like family. So Chris returns to the party um, and meets even more people. And a man named Hiroki Tanaka asks him if an African-American has more advantage or disadvantage in the modern world. So Chris clearly feels awkward and doesn't really want to answer the question. And he sees Logan. And so he says, hey, Logan, they want to know the African-American experience. So how about you take this one? And so Logan slash Andre says that he, for the most part, has had a pretty good time being African-American in today's society. And while he's talking, Chris pulls out his phone to take a picture and accidentally has the flash on, which I don't know if that's ever happened to anyone, but you're trying to take a picture of something. Even if it's not someone of just something and the flash is on and everyone turns to look at you, it's oh, it's very embarrassing. But so that happens. And Chris is like, oh, shit. And everyone just turns and looks at him. And Logan slash Andre's nose starts bleeding. And then all of a sudden, he just kind of snaps. And he starts yelling at Chris to get out and kind of attacks him, like pushes him, almost like he's pushing him into the house to try and get him out the front door. And he sounds like a totally different person. He sounds kind of like he did at the beginning of the movie when he was lost in the neighborhood. Um, and so uh, they kind of pull Logan slash Andre off of Chris. And then in the next scene, Dean is explaining to everyone that Logan had a seizure and then that like, and that, that can sometimes lead to aggression. Dean says that the flash set him off and Missy was able to calm him down. And he's quote unquote, good as new. Logan and his wife leave the party. Um, you know, Logan apologizes to Chris and, you know, says that he's, you know, he's going to go home and get some rest, but he's really happy that everyone took care of him. He's really thankful for Missy for kind of setting him right. And they take their leave. And so Dean says that they should get the party back on track and get bingo started. And right at that moment, Rose decides that her and Chris are going to go for a walk instead. And on the walk, Chris is talking to Rose about how he has a cousin who has epilepsy and he's pretty sure that that was not a seizure and he doesn't believe that that was a seizure and Rose basically says well my dad's a neurosurgeon so I'm kind of inclined to believe what he has to say when it comes to things like that but Chris is having none of it. Um, Chris then talks about how he thinks he knows the Logan guy but not as Logan. He feels like he knows the person that attacked him but he doesn't know the person who's saying you know he's Logan and all of that stuff. And so then at this time we see a clip of the party and it looks like some type of silent auction is happening. You know, everyone's got these bingo cards. Um, Dean, the dad, is up at the front in the gazebo, like kind of putting numbers on his hand and people are, you know, raising their bingo cards. So it looks like a silent auction is going on. There's absolutely no words being said at the party. Um, and then it goes back to... Rose and Chris and he's talking about Missy getting in his head and he's feeling uncomfortable he wants to leave and Rose can decide if she wants to come with him or if she wants to stay it's up to her she seems really upset by this um, about the fact that he would just kind of leave her behind and then at the party you know it kind of is a close-up on Dean of him just kind of putting numbers on his hand like waiting to see who's gonna bid I guess and then as the camera zooms out you see that there's very, very nice picture of Chris 
on this little like easel, whatever you want to call it. You know, like clearly that is what people are bidding on. So Jim ends up being the winner of the auction. He bid the highest. And so we'll find out what that means a little bit later. But Chris and Rose are still at the lake and Chris tells her more about the day that his mom died. He says that she didn't die right away from the impact of being hit by the car and that if he had done something, she probably would still be alive. And so clearly he's carrying a lot of guilt from not doing anything. He was really scared. He was just hoping that, you know, she would walk in the door any minute. Again, he didn't want to cause a scene. He didn't want to go and, you know, get people all worried for then his mom to show up totally fine. He was just hoping that it would kind of all like be a bad dream or, you know, just kind of all work itself out in the end. And sadly, it didn't. And then he says that he's not going to leave without her because she's now all he has. Um, And Rose acts like she feels really bad and says that they can leave together. She's like, you know what, you know, you saying that, I'm sorry I brought you here. This totally sucks. Let's just go home. Let's get out of here. This is terrible. We don't want to be here. This is not fun. Chris tells Rose that he loves her and she says it back and then they head back up to the house so that they can pack and get ready to leave. It's dark by the time they get back to the house and everyone's leaving. They all say goodbye to Chris. And Chris sends Rod the picture that he took of Logan slash Andre while they're packing and Rod immediately calls him and tells him about Andre. They know him and he's been missing for six months. He's like a brother of a friend of a friend that they've met on a few occasions and Chris is like oh my gosh yes that is where we know him from like I swore that I knew him he's acting different you know trying to fill Rod in about all of the different stuff and Rod tells him to leave but Chris's phone dies before they can like Chris can kind of tell him that they're getting ready to come home Um, and so Rose comes in and says that they need to leave Uh, Rose goes to get her bag while Chris is packing. He finds a box of pictures in Rose's room with her and what appear to be old partners of hers. And they're all black. Um, He also sees Andre, Walter, and Georgina in the pictures. And he's like, what the hell? Like, what is going on? Um, But he doesn't want to say anything. He knows that causing a scene in this moment is only going to be bad. Best case scenario is just to literally get out of the house. He just needs to get through that front door, and hopefully be on his way. He'll figure all that out later kind of thing. And so Rose catches him, but acts like she didn't. She just kind of, as he puts the box down and goes to shut the door, she's like, hey, are you ready? Like, ready to go? And he's like, oh yeah, I just couldn't find my camera. Like, I thought maybe we had thrown it in here and it was on like the dresser or something. And she's like, oh no, here it is. And he's like, okay. Um, And so they grab the stuff and... Rose just says that she needs to find her keys. So she starts digging through her purse, trying to find the keys. Um, And he's like, okay, well, let's do this on the go. Like we can do this when we, you know, kind of as we're walking. And so she's still digging through her purse. They kind of come down the front stairs and Jeremy's in front of the door. And it's like, where are you guys going? What's going on? They say that Chris's dog is sick and that they have to leave so that Chris can take him to the vet first thing in the morning. Chris is getting more and more worried and clearly, um, you know, scared and uncomfortable. Um, He's basically cornered in the house. And Dean starts asking him what his purpose is, just being really creepy. And Chris jokingly says, right now it's finding the keys. And he starts to realize that he's in really big trouble. Rose is still looking for the keys. And Chris now yells at her. And Jeremy tries to hit him with, like, a lacrosse stick that he was playing with. Um, 
And Rose is being such a great actress in this scene because she's acting like, I don't know what's going on and why is this happening? And she's like, you know, rummaging through this big old purse that she's got looking for these keys. And Chris takes it. It's a great scene. So she's rummaging through and she's like, I don't know what's happening. And he's kind of holding up his camera bag and there's just this perfect amount of pause. And he says, Rose, where are those keys? And she's like almost in tears now. And then all of a sudden, it's like she just sucks those tears right back into her face. And she goes, you know, I can't give you the keys, right, babe? And she's got them like cupped in her hand. So she had them the whole time. She was just putting on this whole act like they were going to leave together. So Chris drops his bag and he just looks so defeated, so betrayed because he doesn't know what's going to happen, but he knows it cannot be good. Um, and he kind of realizes in that moment that he's going to have to try to fight his way out. So he tries, but Missy taps three times on the teacup with the spoon and he drops into the second place. Not only does he drop into the second place, but his body just goes limp and he drops to the floor. Uh, they take Chris downstairs into the basement and Chris is trapped in the sunken place. Next, we see Rod at work and he's trying to get a hold of Chris. Um, he's getting worried because Chris should be home by now, but he isn't and he won't answer his phone. Rod looks up Andre on his computer and finds that he's been missing for about six months. Chris wakes up in like this activity room in the basement. There's like a pool table and this like really old TV. He's strapped to a chair. Um, sitting in front of the TV and the TV turns on and this is when Chris learns of the coagula or it was started by Dean's father Roman and Roman talks about how it's a service offered to members of their group whatever that means. Next a teacup comes on the screen and puts Chris back in the sunken place. Rod goes to the authorities to report Chris as missing. They think he's being dumb and they literally just laugh him out of the office. Rod calls Chris's phone again and Rose picks up. She tells Rod this crazy story about how Chris took a taxi and left and she's not heard from him and he left his phone. She's acting super weird and Rod can tell that something's not right. She can't tell Rod which cab company Chris used and she's acting really confused. Rod knows that she's lying and he's like, okay, like, damn, I'm like, I'm also confused. Can you, like, hold on a second? So he sets up his computer because he's going to record her because he's like, I do not trust anything that you're saying. Then she starts acting even weirder about how Rod has always wanted her. And she's just saying all this weird sexual stuff. And he's like, you're, you're crazy. Just goodbye. And he hangs up on her. And then you see Rose and she's sitting like, you know, she had been sitting at like what looks like the dining room table and talking on the phone and she's just got this little smirk like smug look on her face and you realize her whole family was watching the entire time and she was saying all of these sexual things to rod and it was eh, just very uncomfortable the whole family is just i do not like it um so chris is still locked in the room and he speaks with jim and so that's basically where he learns a little bit more about what's happening so they're going to take Chris's brain out except for the part that connects to his nervous system and they're going to put Jim's brain in so that Jim has control of Chris's body and Chris will be trapped in the sunken place the whole time and so by having this conversation it's supposed to make the procedure go smoother and Jim says I don't want to be lumped in with the others I'm not doing this because of what color you are I just want your eyes like you know they had talked about how great of an eye Chris had when they talked at the party in terms of like his photography. And so that's basically why Jim wants Chris is so that he can 
use him um, and be the photographer kind of that Jim had always wanted to be. So they get off their little video call, whatever you want to call it, and um, Chris sees that the chair he's sitting in is ripping kind of at the hands and there's like fluff or cotton coming out of it. And so he ends up using that to plug his ears so that he won't hear the tapping on the teacup and hopefully won't be put in the sunken place again. It's a very, very smart move. Chris has to act like he does sink down into the sunken place the next time the teacup comes on the screen. And so when the teacup comes back, he pretends to sink, obviously. And at that moment, Dean is working on opening up Jim's skull and they have this whole operating room set up in the basement. It's weird. It's like candle lit as well it's it's very very spooky very cult like he even has like the special box of tools that he uses for the procedure that jeremy jeremy's and they're helping him and so he brings him this like very nice looking box and then there's these very kind of sketchy looking tools like they're not they don't look clean like you would expect to see you know you would expect sterile tools to be used these do not look like that they look a little dirty a little worse for wear, maybe a little old. Um, but anyway, so Jeremy goes to collect Chris while Dean is working on Jim. So Jeremy gets in the room, undoes the restraints, and he turns his back to kind of get the IV ready because they're getting ready to put Chris under so they can perform the surgery. And Chris, of course, had put the cotton in his ears, and so he didn't end up sinking down. And Chris bludgeons Jeremy in the back of the head twice with a bochi ball. And Dean comes out to check on Jeremy because he should be back now already. And so he's kind of looking down the hallway and then he turns and he looks back and then he turns again, you know, kind of like you're crossing the street, like you look right, you look left, you look right again. And Chris comes out of nowhere and he has taken the giant deer off the wall and just rams him with it. And so the horns go like into his neck and go up into his head. It is definitely the most graphic kill that we see on camera in the film. Um, there's one more and a little bit later that's a lot more, would be more graphic, but we don't actually see any of it happen, but we know what's going on based on the camera angles. Um, but yeah, the Dean's death is definitely the most graphic because he just gets impaled with these deer antlers that Chris has taken the whole like deer, mounted deer head off the wall. So as Dean's kind of stumbling away, trying to get away, bleeding out, he knocks over one of the candles and a fire starts in the basement. And so Chris basically just gets, tries to hightail it out of there. And once he's upstairs, he bumps into Georgina in the kitchen and she just freaks out and runs away. He's covered in blood and he sees his phone on the table and grabs it. And when he turns, he finds Missy in her office and they both eye the teacup on the table, which is kind of in the middle of where they're standing. They both jump forward at the same time, but Chris is a little bit faster and is able to beat her there and swipe it off the table, breaking it. At this point, they're just staring at each other and walking closer. There's really nothing being said. It's just like very intense staring and slow walking to where they're going to meet and basically fight it out. And Missy grabs what looks like a letter opener and stabs Chris through his palm. Like you can see the other end of the open, like the letter opener come out the end. It looks so painful. And Daniel Kaluuya is so good because like, I mean, obviously he didn't actually get stabbed with a letter opener, but you can imagine how painful it was. And just the way he tries to breathe through what would be such a painful thing because he's fighting for his life. It's, ah, it's so well done. Oh, the acting in this is so good. Anyway, 
So he's able to turn his hand and stab Missy somewhere on the face. We don't get to see where it is. Um, the audience doesn't get to see it. But I, I'm imagining it's her eye. And because eye injuries just really gross me out. And I feel like that would be the scariest thing would be to, to get like a nice letter opener to the eyeball. Like that would just, oh, that makes my, oh, gives me goosebumps just thinking about it. So um, when I watch it, I always picture it going into her eye. But we don't actually see it could be like her temple or, um, you know, her cheek or whatever. But um, I always picture it being her eyeball. Um, so Chris heads straight for the front door and Jeremy pops out and jumps on Chris's back. He only hit him in the back of the head, so he's still kind of with it. Um, they're struggling, and Jeremy almost knocks him out with a chokehold. Uh, Chris is, you know, on the verge of passing out, but Chris stabs him in the leg with the letter opener. Um, and this gives Chris just enough time because Jeremy releases him, and so then Chris can turn around and kick him in the chest, and then he head stomps him. So this is the other kill that I was talking about where... It definitely would be really graphic if we saw it, but the camera is angled so perfectly that there's a little, like, bit of wall in between where Jeremy is laying and where his head would be, where the wall is. Um, and so we can see Chris's leg coming up and dropping back down um, with how he's standing, but we don't actually see all of the blood and his head cave in. But you hear all of the, the lovely sounds that come from that. Um, so that's definitely what would be like the most graphic kill, but what the audience sees as the most graphic kill is Dean's. So during all this commotion, Rose is actually upstairs looking for another victim. She's kind of figuring out who she's going to go after next, um, who she's going to bring home to mommy and daddy. She has headphones in and she's eating dry Fruit Loops and drinking white milk, just regular milk, straight up classic milk out of a cup with the straw. She is one Fruit Loop away from being a box of Fruit Loops, or maybe she is a box of Fruit Loops. And she also has all of the pictures of her partners that Chris had found hanging now in frames um, in the, on the wall behind her bed. She's in this like white jacket turtleneck thing. It's a really small scene, but it's so interesting because it makes the color white seem really uncomfortable. Like I know a lot of people don't just drink straight up milk. I'm a chocolate milk fan, but the idea of just like, one eating dry cereal and then just taking sips of milk from a straw like like on purpose it's uh, it's a no from me absolutely not but the design of the scene is so perfect because it's just and she's also listening to the song i had the time of my life which just makes everything a little bit more eerie um especially because she had told chris when they originally sink him and then take him down to the basement once he realizes everything that's happening, she tells Chris that he was her favorite. And so the whole I had the time of my life playing as she's like scouting her next victim, it's very, very intense um, for such a small scene. Um, so Chris takes Jeremy's car and goes to leave the house, but Georgina actually throws herself in front of the car while Chris is on the phone with 911. So Chris stops and it puts him right back where he was when his mom died. And Run Rabbit Run is also playing in Jeremy's car. Again, kind of serving as a warning of just like, just get out of here, Chris. Just go. Just run. But he can't. He can't just leave her. He gets out. He puts Georgina in the car, thinking that she's unconscious, and maybe he'll have a chance to save her. Maybe they'll be able to take whoever is sunk in her and get her back out. So Rose heard the hit and kind of everything that's going on. Um, and goes out to side to check it out. And she comes out of the house with a rifle and sees the car pulling away. And she knows 
that her grandma is with Chris. She knows. So Georgina like comes to quote unquote in the car. It kind of seems like she was maybe never totally unconscious, but we're not totally sure on that one. So she wakes up and her wig falls off to reveal kind of the scar from the operation. And she attacks Chris in the car because he ruined her house because now the house is totally on fire. The car crashes and Georgina dies because she wasn't wearing a seatbelt. Always a good reminder to wear your seatbelt. And Rose is caught up to them by this point and starts shooting at Chris when he gets out of the car. It's a shot of just her, um, you know, pointing the gun kind of off camera towards Chris. And you can hear this running. And you know that it's not Chris because it's coming from behind Rose. And it's Grandpa. It's Walter. And so she says, get him, Grandpa. And Walter just is full-on sprinting, tackles Chris to the ground. They start wrestling. Walter's basically got Chris on the ground. He's trying to crush his skull, which is just very, very brutal to just take your hands and try and push in someone's skull. Skull's a very hard thing. But Chris is able to get his phone out of his pocket and like flash Walter with the flash on the camera of his phone so that the real person can come back in control of his body. And so Rose comes up behind him and Walter turns around and says that he wants to do it. The basically implying that he wants to shoot Chris. So she hands over the rifle and then he shoots Rose in the stomach. And then he turns the gun on himself, which is very sad. Basically because he decides that he would rather die than be controlled by someone else in his own body which is just it's just heartbreaking so rose is still alive a little bit and she's trying to reach for the rifle chris is able to pull it away from her and starts to basically try and strangle her and allison william play allison williams plays this scene so well because she acts all sorry and tells chris that she loves him but then she instantly turns it off when she knows that he won't be able to kill her and she just smiles and like her eyes get kind of squinty and just she just has this really smug look on her face and it's so creepy and you just really feel for chris because he totally he really liked her he thought that she could have been possibly the end-all be-all he put up with all of her family nonsense and then for to find out that their whole relationship was a lie, like every single part of it. She only went after him for this weird cult, basically, that her family is a part of. Um, it's just crushing. And so Chris stops and they are just kind of sitting there looking at each other. You're wondering, like, okay, what, like, how, how is this going to end? Then you see the red and blue lights reflecting on Rose's face. And it just feels like a gut punch initially because you're like, this can't. Like, this can't be how it ends. So Chris put basically puts his hands up and it feels like such a defeat to the audience because it's like, you know what's going to happen. You know, like this black guy strangling this white girl. There's all of these people dead. Like, it's not going to be good for Chris. And after he's been the victim and everything, and it just kind of goes back to everybody knows how terrible the, you know, prison system is and how it just targets black men and it just, yeah, I I didn't realize that I was holding my breath um, the first time that I watched this until, like, you see the car pull up and Rose is trying to call for help. And the audience knows that this isn't going to end well for Chris. And after everything he's been through now, the cops show up and it's just not going to be good. And we see the car door open and it says airport. And Rod steps out and says Chris's name. And it's like, I, it wasn't until that point that I realized I was holding my breath because I let everything out. And then I was like, oh my gosh, that was so, like, that was possibly the scariest part of the movie. Um, because it's just like, oh God, like, you know, the likelihood that all of the 
the craziness of brain transfers and body snatchers happening. Like, you know, that's that's not a real-life scare, but the police brutality of it all, that is an everyday real-life scare that people have and worry that people have. And it just, yeah, I think that honestly for me was the scariest scene of the whole film. Um, so Chris looks super relieved, obviously, um, and just silently walks to the car and gets in and Rod gets back in and they're just kind of sitting there not driving or anything yet. And the first thing that Rod says to Chris is, I told you not to go into that house. And Chris says, how did you find me? And Rod turns to him and says, I'm T.S. motherfucking A. We handle shit. That's what we do. Consider this situation fucking handled. And they drive away and that beautifully haunting Swahili song starts playing and Rose dies watching them drive off. And that is the end of Get Out. So let's get into the alternate ending. So the alternate ending is that the real police show up right after Chris actually strangles Rose and he's arrested. The house burned down, so of course there's no evidence, and the, and the prison system values rich white people, and so Chris's word means absolutely nothing, you know, in the whole scenario of it all. Um, and so then we see Rod visit Chris in prison six months after the events from that night, and Chris says that he stopped it, meaning all of the, you know, things that were happening in that house, you know, that whole cult, like it was all, none of that can happen again. And then also meaning that he was kind of able to beat his inner demon about how when he didn't, how he wasn't able to help his mom when he was younger, um, but he ended up going back for Georgina. So Jordan Peele feels that, um, you know, him kind of saying that shows that, you know, he was able to kind of get free of his own demons. And even though he's locked up, his soul is free. Um, but yeah, I think that that alternate ending is super powerful and Harry and Kluya's, um kind of back and forth in that moment is super strong and powerful. And I will have the link to that in the description of the episode and I'll try and remember to post it on socials if I can. And yeah, I would encourage everyone to go give it a watch if they haven't because it's a really powerful ending. All right. I think that that is all that I have for this week's episode. Thank you so much for hanging out with me while I chatted all about Get Out and expressed my love for Daniel Kaluuya. I would love to hear your guys' thoughts. So leave a comment, check out our socials, um, rate, review, subscribe, all that great stuff. We are on Twitter and Instagram under M as in massacre, murder movies. So that's M murder movies. And yeah, I hope everyone has a lovely, lovely week and I'll see you in the next one when we watch Night of the Living Dead. And remember, stay safe and stay spooky.